0: This is Joseph Clare and you're listening to George Fox Talks Theology. Yes, welcome to George Fox Talks Theology, your host, Joseph Clare. So good to be here today with our special guest, Frederick Christian Bauerschmidt, <laughs> all the way from uh, Baltimore here at George Fox today, professor of theology at Loyola University of Maryland, and uh, been there for 20 some more <laughs> years. We won't say exactly how many years, has uh, worked on medieval theology, um, among other things, Julian of Norwich. Um, but today our topic with him is his new-ish book, The Love That Is God, An Invitation to Christian Faith for Our Visual Viewers. There it is, Eerdmans, a year or two ago. Highly, heartily recommend, commend it to you. And uh, so good to have you here today.
1: It's great to be here, Justin. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we'll go first name and affectionately Fritz is right. how you're known to the world at yeah. large. Yeah, so Fritz, thank you. I will just begin um, as I begin every show, and that is the theology uh, channel on George Fox Talks is, is devoted to this idea that there's implicitly a theology of everything in life. So no matter how secular or reductive our world is, there's a there's a religious or a Christian theological understanding of most of what we do. And today, the topic is a theology of love and the love that is God. So uh, there's a kind of circle there between a theology of love and the love that is God. But I, I wonder more more basically, Fritz, how uh, how you came to write this book? How would you describe the, the journey into this, this book?
1: Um, well, I, uh, in addition to being a professor of theology, I'm a permanent deacon in the Catholic Church. Hmm. And so... As part of that, I preach on a regular basis. And one Sunday, I, um, during the, I think it's the sixth week of Easter, preached on um, a particularly happy uh, confluence of texts. One was the story of the conversion of Cornelius from the Book of Acts. Uh, The first letter of John, you know, God is love. And the uh, Gospel of John, Jesus is one of his, Last Supper discourses about I've I've called you friends. Mm. You know, no greater love has anyone than to lay down his life for a friend. Um, And as I was thinking about those texts, which I preached on as they come up in the lectionary on a number of occasions, um, what struck me on that occasion was how you could use these three um, these three texts to really sum up what Christianity is all about. So I gave a homily and I basically said, you know, what is Christianity all all about? And I boiled it down to five points. You know, God is love. The love that is God is crucified love. Hmm. Um, we can't love God without loving one another. Um, that uh, the spirit makes friendship with the risen Jesus possible. And that we live out our love in the community that we call church. And so I kind of had these five points and I talked about them each briefly. Hmm. I um, mean, that homily is contained as a kind of an appendix to yeah, to the that's book, right. yeah, um, but somebody came up to me afterwards, uh, you know, as you're standing at the door shaking hands back as we did in pre covid days. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, this was somebody who I knew our uh, her daughter had gone to uh, high school with with my children, and um and she said she wished her daughter, who was no longer, practicing the faith, Hmm. could have been there to hear it because she thought it was like a, it boiled things down to the basics and it presented it in a positive manner. And she thought, you know, that we can get so caught up in, you know, politicizations of Christianity and, uh, you know, controversial cultural issues that she just really wished her daughter had been able to to be there to hear it. Hmm. And so... Uh, it kind of got me thinking. I thought, well, you know, those five points—you could write a short chapter on each one as a jumping-off point—and right. yep. have a kind of a, a book that this woman could give her daughter and say, you know, you should, you should read this. And so, I ended up um, through various incompetencies on my part, I ended up with a twelve-hour wait in an airport, and I had my laptop <coughs> with me, and I pulled it out and I started writing the first chapter. <laughs> while waiting at the, while waiting at this airport for 12 hours. And, um, know, yeah, the book was written pretty quickly. It was written, you know, probably in about six weeks, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it just, I know a lot of it was just the, you know, that sort of ideas that had been rattling sure. around in my head yeah. for years, partly, you know, teaching young people, yeah. um, for, for many years and so i kind of had a repertoire of yeah. examples i use and i ways of phrasing things and issues that i think are important to understand and so it kind of it came pretty quickly
0: yeah now i i mean it smacks in a good way of that fruits of a mature teacher many years teaching intro to theology to all yeah. sorts of different students teaching in the church and catechetical senses but distilling and boiling down a life of learning and scholarship as a gift and how amazing to have uh, a readable book that you can hand, you know, to your your guests at a party or something rather than <laughs> our usual scholarly stuff that no one cares about. But no, it's it's more than that. I mean, I think the task of boiling Christianity down to its essence, although there's dangers in doing that, uh, in an era where people feel estranged from the faith or are drifting or maybe just don't have any clue about what it means, we're like secular enough in pockets of our culture the ability to do it in 120 pages or in a conversation with someone that's not just catechetical it's evangelistic. And, um, I think you have a kind of a winsome light touch, as you say, in terms of introducing the faith. So why love, I guess that's a question. Um, I see why the contingencies of your homily drove you into that, uh, position. Um, I think you're joined by other great figures in church history like Augustine and others and thinking there's something about that, um, predicate, uh, love to describe who God actually is, but he's also described as lots of other things like holy and righteous and merciful and all these different things. So why, why does love get the place it gets in this boiling
1: down to the essence? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I think in some ways it's the own, my own particular theological influences. I, as you said, I, I did, uh, my early work on Julian of Norwich, I wrote my dissertation on her and that was my first book and Julian's someone for whom love is just absolutely the central theme of her her writing, mm. and um, other medieval women writers who highlight love as a theme. And these mm-hmm. are people I've taught over the years: you know, Catherine of Siena, Marguerite Paret. Um, so I think some of it are the the particular influences that I've I've had on me as as a theologian, um, and not least Augustine, whom, whom you mentioned. Mm. But I also think that the claim that God is love is one that Christians themselves have in some way so trivialized mm. that there's a, there was a certain uh, bracing challenge to try and, you know, breathe, blow some of the sentimentality out of that notion and mm. breathe a little bit more robust life into it mm. and to— really get a sense of like, well, what a, what a radical claim this is. Mm. Um, partly because, you know, love is an act, mm-hmm. right? I mean, love's not a thing. Love, mm-hmm. is an, love is an act. And as somebody who has spent a lot of time thinking about Thomas Aquinas and mm-hmm. notions of God as pure act and kind of very rarefied philosophical notions, mm-hmm. um, it struck me that the idea of God as love is a very non-technical and intuitively powerful way of getting at something that I think some of the greatest theological minds have tried to express that god is really not so much a thing as as god is an activity mm. right
0: isn't isn't its uh, that's all wonderful i i wonder though if that accessibility and intuitive um, element is also like the danger of saying something like god is love like what do you mean like god is so we just had valentine's day a couple of days right. ago and I got to see all my kids like Encanto, Disney, Valentines, you know, that they're writing to their fifth grade crush or whatever. Like, is that, so are you saying like, God, is that the Encanto Valentine's Day crush card in fifth grade or? It's not what I want to be saying.
1: <laughs> um, uh, you no, know, I mean, one of the things that, uh, and I, I use this in in the book, but uh, Pope Benedict, uh, the first encyclical he wrote was called Deus Caritas Est, Mm. God is Love. And one of the things he talks about there is that one of the challenges of understanding that is what he calls the vast semantic range of the word love. You know, Mm. I mean, everything from I love my country, I love God, I love pizza, you know, Mm -hmm. I love little baby ducks, old pickup trucks, (laughs) you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why the, the claim God is love in the book is immediately followed up by the second claim is that the love that is God is crucified love. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea that if you know, given the vast semantic range of love, given all the different ways love can be used and misused as a term, um, Christianity makes the claim that it's on th- in the cross of Jesus that we see the love that God is. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's where it gets its specificity so that it's not incanto Valentine's. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, unless you like, I don't know, put a crucifix on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, there could be, yeah. There's some self giving <laughs> self sacrificial, right? Yeah. No, I, I mean, that's the, I think that's the, that's the mystery is the concept is so vague and abstract. It's so universal, so that's why it's amazing way into people's understanding. But it's also the uh, the problem in so far as like you could almost fill it with any content. So what content gets filled in, right?
1: Right, right. Yeah, and I begin with a quotation from you know Christopher Hitchens, the notorious atheist yeah. writer, where he describes the claim God is love as white noise, mm. right? You know, and and I think you know he's an astute critic to know that this is. Um, it It's a claim that could mean anything and it could also mask a lot of things you know, yeah the way we use white noise to mask you know other sounds yeah. and I think Christians have you know used the claim God is love to you know mask some pretty heinous misbehavior by Christians, sure,
0: yeah, yeah, the last thing um you yeah the thing the the pagan feared most and uh in the ancient or medieval world was Christians coming to love them, right? So right. <laughs> maybe we're just doing it in different in different ways now in a in a framework. I guess though, um, that leads to this this idea. So the claim God is love. So if you could get out of just like a really wavy gravy sentimental, right. you know, sort of like kitsch Disney American romance or something to the next level of love, which I do think has a fair and a bit of popular appeal. And maybe the theological element gets a pass of it, pass for it in this case of what God is love actually means is that, um, our social, um, our social arrangements should be about pure affirmation and embrace of other people, just total sort of like welcome. Right. So you might, in politically polarized and divided times, you'll find like front yard signs that say something like "You are loved" or "You are accepted." You know, so this 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 the sense in which we're trying to overcome the implicit judgmental, you know, sort of cultural codes toward pure embrace, and yet that's also happening simultaneously in one of the most like bitter, critical, judging, cancel culture, you know, sort of social um, arrangements at the same time. So, how does I mean is is God is love? is it a front yard sign of pure affirmation and embrace or how, how do, how do these things relate in God? Is it better than how it relates in us as a culture usually?
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's really the question of the relationship between God's love and God's, God's um, God's justice and God's mercy. Okay, yeah, right. And right. how, um, you know, I think of, uh, I don't know who originally said this, it usually gets ascribed to Cornell West about how, you know, justice is love in public, mm-hmm. right? Mm. Um, and so, so, you know, the, the the public face of love is justice. Yeah. And um, I, I quote a, a line from Martin Luther King in the book where he talks about, you know, the God of Christians is, is great enough that he can be both, you know, tenderhearted and strong-minded, mm-hmm. you know, and that, you know, the God of love is not a, a wishy-washy God. Um, uh, you know, that, that genuine, I mean, I think as any parent knows, you know, genuine love sometimes requires having to tell people things that they don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. Right. And, right. you know, but one, one of the things I, I've have noted that, um, I mean, I sometimes think that, you know, speaking as a, as a Roman Catholic, that it's sort of the, has become the vocation of the Catholic, uh, the Catholic church in, the, in maternity to say no. Mm. Right. You know all sorts of things in our culture. And the you know, the Catholic Church is casting the role of, of saying no. But I think and and maybe and that can be a perfectly valid cultural role to be, mm-hmm. you know, like, well, let's let's tap the brakes here. Right. Um, but I think there's a difference between people who say no with a certain sorrow, knowing that even though it's the right thing to to tell somebody like the way you're living your life is not correct mm. or mm-hmm or you can't have this thing that you want it's it's one thing to say that with a certain sorrow because you know that this is you know bringing a certain pain and suffering to this person that might mm-hmm. be ultimately salutary but there's still pain and suffering there and then there's those people who just delight in saying no mm-hmm. right <laughs> sure. and, the, yeah. and the danger then mm. is, you know, you begin to attract the people who just like saying no. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I do think that if, if God is love, then I think part of what that means is that when you say no in a way that is, you know, going to cause people a certain amount of grief, you need to be willing to share that grief. Right. Mm. You know, if you're going to say the church has this teaching on whatever it is, sexuality, e- e- sexuality, economics, mm-hmm. I mean, it could be any number of things mm. um, that it's going to require them to say no to the culture. You, you've got to be willing to share the the pain that people feel being mm. denied these things. Mm. Wow. You know? Yeah. And I that could sort of kind of
0: social embodiment of this divine love which includes both i guess grace and truth or love and truth or something like that so how does the love so god is love first john 4 and kind of the witness of scripture as a whole but really quickly you turn the book to say if we want to fill in the picture of what that means insofar so far as it's available to our human understanding you have to see that the love that is
1: god is this crucified love so how how does that work well, that's a good question. I mean, that gets to the the mystery of the cross. And it's it's interesting. I mean, the book has been, you know, as far as I know, you know, very positively received. But some of the the few critical comments I've, recei- I've received have um, been, in fact, in relation to how I understand this notion of crucified love. Mm. Be- because I, well, I think there might be a limited place um, for notions of, you know, the, the cross as, you know, kind of a, a punishment. I mean, that's certainly a part of the Christian tradition. It seems to me that the overwhelming witness of the Christian tradition is not that God punishes Jesus on the cross, but rather that the life that Jesus leads leads him to the cross and God wills that life. And in much as God wills the life that Jesus leads, God's willing the outcome, which is, Jesus's crucifixion, or God at least is willing Jesus's life and foreknowledge of that outcome. Mm. Um, But that at the end of the day, um, what we see in the cross of Jesus is what we sinful fallen human beings do to one who loves supremely. Mm -hmm. Um, and when perfect love appears in the world, we want to kill it because it's threatening, Mm. right? It it threatens the, (laughs) the power arrangements. It threatens our own, you know, to use the Augustinian term, our own lust for domination, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and it presents a real alternative, an alternative way of living that, that what it means for us to be fallen creatures is that we don't want to live that way. Yeah. Um, because it's risky. Yeah. And so um, so some people have, have felt that I uh, don't give enough credit to the idea to, to kind of focusing on the cross as a kind of an exchange between God and humanity where Jesus pays God on our behalf and God forgives our debt because of Jesus. I mean, like I said, I, that is certainly a strand in the Christian tradition. It's not what I focus on uh, mm-hmm. in, in the book. And so some people have felt that that was not, people are very invested in the idea that Jesus took a punishment on our behalf. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, especially
0: Protestants, but there's yeah, strands, in the strands in the Catholic Church Catholic as well where it's yeah. substitutionary atonement, right, penal right. substitution, something like that. Do you feel, I guess the question is, if the goal is for God to demonstrate his love to us in a way that... um moves us affectively intellectually and opens us to him. Um, if there is part of the demonstration that is sacrificial substitutionary, I mean, you can think of all the heroic, like what could be more like, um, affectively moving than someone willing to step in the place of another person to die on their behalf or something. right? Right. There's like a grand kind of narrative sort of, tradition of heroism, do you feel like there's the potential that we're, you're short circuiting some of the demonstration of love? I mean, is that the criticism or how do you respond to
1: yeah, that? Yeah, I, I think that is the criticism. And and I could certainly imagine writing a different book where I might focus more on that. But, you know, if you think about like heroism, I mean, heroism is not simply, you know, a, a particular punctiliar moment where somebody does a great sacrificial thing Mm -hmm. there's a whole life that leads up to it right and um to truly count somebody as as a hero it's not just that they die a horrible cruel death but it's all those moments that lead up to that death and that's Mm -hmm. why i think um in interpreting the one things i say is interpreting the cross you have to put it in the context both of the resurrection that follows and Mm. i think that's a not uncommon theological move today, but also of the life that precedes it, mm, mm-hmm. right? And what is it about that life that leads to this outcome of the cross? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I there's a I, concept I borrow from the a Jesuit philosopher Ignacio e. Correa, who was killed in El Salvador by government forces, um, where he says, you know, the question isn't, you know, why did Jesus die, but why was Jesus killed? Um, or another way to put it is, you know, Jesus wasn't simply raised from the dead. He was raised from the murdered, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) Um, and, uh, and I think that that is something that, that certain strands in recent theology have begun to explore, but I think there's a lot more that we can, can do Mm -hmm. in thinking about how is the death of Jesus connected to the life that came before it. Yeah, Sure. I mean,
0: you would want to just imagine that the more exploration of the complete picture of his life, death, resurrection, ascension as one piece, the more enrichment, you know, for your soul is available. So how, so whether the demonstration of that love in the crucified love that God has for humanity in Christ, that includes the complete sweep of Jesus's life, not excluding maybe the atoning sacrificial part, but completing it in this picture of you live a life of this kind of pure love, you're killed. You know, what does that say about us as sinful fallen humanity? The upshot of this is a kind of new possibility for a relationship with God through Christ. I mean, this is kind of the flow of your argument. How does that, how does that work and how do you get to a place as a person where you're um, open to that friendship with God?
1: Yeah. Well, this is why I think um, in theology, you know you're, what you what you say about the cross has to be connected to what you say about the resurrection, mm. and what you say about the resurrection has to be related to what you say about the giving of the Holy Spirit, right? And mm. and the workings of grace in people's lives, yeah. right? And um, it seems it seems to me that th- this is one of the reasons why I I spend a lot of time on this notion of friendship, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know Aquinas talks about love as friendship with God, and you know the certainly within the Aristotelian framework that Aquinas was working in, this is a very peculiar claim to claim mm-hmm. that you can be friends with God. It's in fact, it's something Aristotle explicitly denies that a mortal could be a friend with a god, mm. right You just don't share a form of life you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. um so uh so the idea that the 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 death of Jesus. In the context of his resurrection um, and the giving of the spirit is a kind of a trajectory that 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 makes possible friendship with God. Mm. Um, now, at, at the end of the day, I mean, theological explanation always falls apart. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, you, you have to say, well, I mean, grace is just, and the workings of grace are just mysterious, you know, exactly what the resurrection is. Mm. You know, I mean, I think we know what it's not. It's not simply us feeling like Jesus is alive. You know, it's simply not, you know, uh, the resuscitation of a corpse, mm-hmm. like when you you know, like you might do in an emergency room. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's something mysterious, but at the end of the day, well, what is the resurrection? Oh, you know. <laughs> um, and, and this is something I worry about a lot, you know, the tendency in, in theology to over-explain mm. and not know when you need to stop and simply say, yeah, this, is, this yeah. is a mystery. And I do think there's a sense in which how the death and resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit make possible friendship with God is ultimately sort of mysterious hmm. um not sort of mysterious deeply mysterious <laughs> yeah, yeah. right um uh and we can we can do we can make our best shots at trying to gain insight into that mystery but at the end of the day i i feel like i want to just say well, you know it's it is just really a mystery sure absolutely
0: yeah. i think i mean the premise is that there's I don't know, personality or something there in the divine that's like friendable, right? So you can right. maybe not friend them on Facebook, but you can <laughs> friend them in the stars. And I, you know, I've, I work in early church theology, as you know, and one of the wranglings going on is the doctrine of the Trinity. So you definitely have one God monotheism coming out of Judaism, but you got this father, son, Holy spirit, what's, been given to us in revelation and scripture and in the life of the church. And they're trying to find the right concept to name the threeness. There's oneness for sure, but there's gotta be threeness. Otherwise it right. breaks down. And so they're looking for the right concepts and the East and the West, you know, kind of go in different directions. But ultimately you can't say there's three gods. Um, You can't say there's three, um, you know, substances like, I don't know, gold or something but you can't say there's three persons because there's something right. about personhood personality that seems to get the distinction in a real way but keeps the unity um, in the in the relationship itself so I guess two two full question why is personhood so important especially in the Latin West and theology for thinking about, the divine and how is our friendship with God related to whatever inner relationships going on already between the three persons?
1: Yeah. Um I mean, I I use I make a, a very brief foray into the Trinitarian theology of of Richard of St. Victor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um one of the great uh, medieval, one of the great medieval theologians whose work has been largely neglected until the last few decades. Mm. And it's kind of a revival of interest in Richard of St. Victor and other figures around him. Um, and he has a quite distinctive understanding of the Trinity where he in, he begins with the principle that God is love and kind of following the same path that Anselm of Canterbury does in his Proslogion. He says, well, if God is... Um, Love, God must be that love then that love than which no greater can be conceived. Mm. And well the greatest form of love is not it's not self-love. It's not love of an object, it's love of another person. That's mm. you know, that, that's what we call charity, caritas mm-hmm. in Latin. And uh so Richard says, Well, so if God is love and God is the highest form of love, then God must somehow be interpersonal love. Mm-hmm. You know, not simply one who loves interpersonally, but God must be interpersonal love itself. So there must be an other in God, an other that is a person. But then he says, but that's still not the highest form of love because... I mean, he doesn't use this example, but we all know, like, you know, your college roommate or your friend, you know, falls in love. And suddenly it's they're this exclusive dyad and everybody hates them, right? Because they're just wrapped up in each other. Now, the highest form of love is fruitful love, love that is generative, mm. right, of of further personhood. And you mm. can think of it in terms of, you know, married couples having children. But you can also think of other ways in which the love that two people have mm-hmm. can, as it were, Impart personhood to others by mm-hmm. bringing them into that relationship. So, um, so Richard uses this to kind of make an argument. Well, why, why we might connect the claim that God is love to the claim that God is three persons. Mm-hmm. That this is the, the, the would be the highest form of love. Um, and then it, it sort of makes sense that what. You know, if God is this sort of generative form of love, then eventually it's going to, as it were, spill over into love of what is not God, Mm, mm -hmm. right? Um, But it's because it's the the highest form. And I think that this really gets at something that's crucially important about God's love for us is because God is already this perfect love of Mm -hmm. the three persons— God doesn't love us out of any kind of need, Mm -hmm. right? God doesn't need our love. God already has love given and returned, Mm -hmm. right? And that's what love is. Love is an exchange, right? Mm -hmm. You give love, you receive love. This is the most perfect form of love. Well, God's already that perfect exchange of love Mm -hmm. within the persons of the Trinity. So then God's love for creatures is entirely gratuitous, right? God doesn't do it out of any need. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I sometimes use the example of, you know, like if you think of a married couple, who decide to have a child because they feel something is lacking in their relationship. Mm -hmm. That's just a recipe for disaster. Right. You know, I mean, not like we really love each other. We want to have a child, but there's something between us. That's not right. Let's have a child and that's going to fix it. I mean, one, it never fixes it. Um, But two, that puts an incredible burden on the child, right? Mm. The child has to supply a lack in the Mm. parent's relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we think of, creatures as somehow supplying a lack in God, Mm. right? It's not only blasphemous with regard to God, you know, that that God could be needy in that kind of way, but it also puts an incredible burden on creatures. Mm. Like we've got to spend our lives supplying something that God is missing. Mm. Um, But if you have a Trinitarian conception of God, if you think of God as this already perfect act of generative love, then we're freed to be creatures who just like a child can be freed to be a child mm. to be who he or she is because they don't have to worry about you know supplying something missing in the parents' relationship yeah right? now that
0: sense of surplus and overflow and generosity generativity or whatever the word is is I mean think of it a very mundane way there's friends that the relationship is somewhat spurred by need or lack, you know, and you can kind of feel it. Maybe you're not keeping up the friend's expectations or you let communication lapse for a period of time to kind of have to like patch back into it versus a friend. Yeah. It's described as you kind of pick up where you left off and it's just pure joy and generosity. You see the person again, you think of God as just the infinite version of that needy, unself preoccupied giving love.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Aristotle has his three forms of friendship. And if you know, there's friendships of utility where, you're friends with this person because they give you something you need. Like, Mm. you know, it's a business, you know, partnership or it's something. And then there's what he calls friendships of pleasure. You know, you just like the person's amusing. They're funny. They're pleasant to be around. And then there's what he calls virtuous friendship, honorable friendship. It can be translated various ways where what unites you is a shared love of the good. Mm. Right. Um, and if you think about friendships of utility and pleasure, they're incredibly fragile. Like, you know, well, what if I just I just don't I'm sad and I don't feel like being funny one day, and and you're friends with me because I can always make you laugh, but I'm I'm not I, I'm feeling bad today, and mm. and then suddenly our friendship's in peril, right? Mm. Or you're friends with me because I. You know, I'm more powerful than you are, and I'm a patron of you, and and I can, you know, I give money to your podcast and keep it on the air, and but then suddenly Which I suffer, true, yeah. I suffer a financial setback, and I can't do that anymore. Then now the friendship's in peril, It's right? over, yeah, right. But if friends are united by a shared love of the good,
0: mm.
1: well, I mean that good has a kind of an enduring quality, sure. right? Yeah. And as long as they both share that love of the good, the friendship is going to endure, right right? So, yeah,
0: no, I mean, you think about it, Augustine talks about this, like you're united with other people on the basis of what your shared objects of love, common objects of love. So you're never more united than when you're a Rams fan at SoFi Stadium, you know, a bunch (laughs) of other Rams fans, but next season when they lose to the 49ers and there's a different (laughs) outcome, then that friendship might fall apart or, but he says, you know, nothing against lower forms of common objects of love. We like hot dogs, we share that in common, whatever. But the more valuable, rich, the good that you share, the affection for the richer, the bond that you have, the more enduring, the more life giving it is. So if you have a shared passion for justice or the beautiful, you know, uh, for nature as God's creation, these are like enduring um, loves and they don't, they're not as um, fragile, you know, in this, in that sense.
1: Yeah. And, and I think this is important for how we think about the church. I mean, I think the church is a community of friends, not in the sense that we all necessarily like each other, like, you know, that I find everybody in the church amusing or even useful, right? They're, they're oh, not you... they're not friendships of of pleasure or utility, <laughs> but they're they should be virtuous friendships and that where we're united by shared love of God. Sure. Right? Yeah.
0: I mean, that's the that's the stadium where the object is the the victorious King, right? Right. Yeah. And,
1: and and this is one of the lessons I draw from the story of the conversion of Cornelius, right? Mm. I mean, the last person that Peter ever expected to be in a community with was this you know Gentile, this unclean <laughs> right. Gentile, right? Right. And yet the Spirit, you know, puts them together, and I think that that should be model for our experience of the church right Mm -hmm. it's like this motley crew of people um and you you know look around and go like how did what what do we have in common well we have this shared love of god yeah um it seems like
0: such an important note for us today in such a divisive you know rage culture political polarization we've heard it all before but the flow of your argument is there's this God who is love, this inner relationship of pure love in the Trinity. It overflows and manifests fully in the face of Jesus of Nazareth and his life, death, and resurrection. We're called into that mysteriously through the spirit and uh, conversion. But then you kind of say there's a really important part right out of 1 John where John seems really clear that if you say you love God, but you don't love the person right in front of you, then you actually don't love God. I mean, that's a social yeah. sort of I, dimension. I think we,
1: that, that's one of the most in, amazing claims in the New Testament, I think. Absolutely. Um, because it also speaks to how self-deceived we can be, oh, right? You know, boy, yeah, I really love God. Boy, I hate Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly.
0: And how, uh, how does that self-deception work? I mean, why are we so... Um, lenient about it? And I mean, what is, what's this word translated for our own moment?
1: I mean, we're in a pretty raw, you know, social moment, I would say. Yeah. I I mean, I think it's always really easy to substitute some kind of ideology for God, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, maybe it's inevitable, right? I I think probably nobody has a conception of God that's completely free from ideology, but it is just, it's so easy. um, And it's almost as if, I feel like some people feel like in, if you're not excluding people on ideological grounds, you're just not doing it right. Mm. You're just not serious, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> um, and like I said, you know, the church sometimes has the vocation of saying no. Mm. Um, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, all are welcome, all are accepted. I mean, on some level, that is true. I That is, that is true. Uh, on another level well really not I mm-hmm. mean that um uh but I think people can there's there's some kind of strange dialectic that's going on in this right of mm-hmm. of well like Miroslav wolf called it you know exclusion and embrace right mm-hmm. And that these that there's something there's a strange dialectic of of exclusion and embrace that that goes on in in the the church um but I I think that there is a tendency that people feel like if you're not excluding enough, you're just not serious. Mm-hmm. And then the principle according to which we want to exclude people is always some ideological principle. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I see, I see it on, I mean, it really is true. I mean, I don't want to, you know, fall into the sort of both sides rhetoric, but it is, I think true on both the left and the right in mm-hmm. our current culture. Um, that uh, we are just intoxicated with division mm. um, mm-hmm. and and hatred, right? Um, and I think there's lots of reasons for that. I mean, I think social media, you know, sure. yeah. you know, people podcasts, <laughs> this podcast probably, yeah, yeah you're yeah. probably have, adding to it. Yeah, you probably have whole episodes <laughs> on who who you should hate. Um, that was but, last week. Yeah, yeah. Um, but. Uh, but I, I think what, for whatever the reason is, I think we are in a particularly toxic is that, moment. Is that
0: partly secularization, the loss of deeper like spiritual identities, or is it just social media, or just too hard? To, it's just too many factors.
1: Well, I think it's it's an overdetermined phenomenon, as they, as they would say in yeah. you know, critical theory. But it's um, uh, I, I think there's a lot of things going on. Um, I think we do live in a highly fragmented society. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one of the manifestations of this is like, if I try and make any kind of cultural reference in class, I mean, I, it, it most hits, you know, 5% of the students because mm-hmm. we're, we don't really have these. I mean, I guess we now have the pandemic as a as a ex- thing that we've all experienced. So I'll be able to talk <laughs> about the pandemic for a few years. Um, <laughs> But for the most part, I think it's, you know, we consume niche cultures, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm. uh, and so that's that's part of it. Um, yeah. And it, so it's, it, is it secularization? Well, I mean, secularization means a whole bunch of different things. Sure, yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: I guess it just a lot... The imminent frame, you know, in Charles Taylor's kind of sense of like our lives have been imminentized or something where it's more about this worldly material attachments here and now and not transcendent aims. And so all of a sudden political, national identities, material, you know, kind of concerns of identity become, I don't know, more determinative of who you are. I don't know.
1: Yeah. No, and I think in some ways it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, how creatures are... Can be made to bear a weight that they that they break down under, mm-hmm. and I and I sort of think that this is happening in politics. I've been in numerous uh, surveys uh, and comparisons of surveys that, like, I'm, I'm going to make up these numbers, but like in the 1950s, it was something like, you know. of people said that they would marry somebody of a different political party and 75% said they would not marry somebody of a different religion. Mm, mm -hmm. And now in surveys, this is completely flipped right now. 75% say they would never marry anybody of a different political party, but 75 plus percent is like, oh yeah, different religion, whatever. Um, And I think that, I think one of the things that's making our politics so toxic is it's having to bear the weight of transcendence, right? And and giving ultimate meaning to people's lives. And that's,
0: that's all I mean by the force of secularization. So take this to the church for a minute. So what if I've followed you this far? I'm like, okay, yeah, love is serious. I've seen self-sacrificing love. Wow. There's actually like a God who's self sacrificing in his love, and he's demonstrated it to us and invited us into it. Um, but we live in an age that is all it's the nuns, it's or at most it's spiritual but not religious, or in our context, a more evangelical world, it's I'm into Jesus but not the church, you know, no thank you, very anti institutional, anti organizational. Out here. So, how do I make the leap to community? Maybe I'm like all on board with everything you've said about love, God being love, and
1: wanting into that. But, like, don't make me go to church. Like, why church? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's a really good question because church can be such a horrifically miserable experience sometimes. (laughs) No. Um, (laughs) Uh, But it can also be a wonderful and life-giving experience. Only a deacon would say that. Yeah, And and I do think that the church is one of the few places where, and this is, of course, uh, because of the failures of the church, this might be less and less true, but it is a place where you can encounter people who you would never be in community with otherwise, Mm. right? Um, And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I think, like, I'm a you know, deacon at the Cathedral of Mary, our queen in Baltimore, where we get all sorts of varieties and sundries. And so we have our, you know, former democratic senator, you know, coming up for communion, followed by a transgender person, followed by somebody with, a, you know, who has a you know MAGA flag on their, on their truck. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think there's all sorts of ways in which different people need to be held accountable for you know, ways in which their lives might or might not conform to the gospel. But um, you know, it's like they're all there. Mm. And um you can uh, uh, there's not many other places where it seems to me, except maybe sporting events sure. <laughs> where yeah. people have such differing ideologies, mm. you know, can can be found in the same place. But I mean, in some ways that's a little too instrumentalist even. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's an important, and I think this is one of the lessons in the book of Acts, is this kind of very heterogeneous Mm. community that the spirit creates. The spirit seems to delight in heterogeneity. Yeah. Um, But I think ultimately, again, you know, the the church is a mystery, and the presence of Christ in the church is a mystery. I mean, I suppose you could just say, well, Paul's simply wrong about the church being the body of Christ. Mm. I, I'm not quite sure I'm ready to go to go to yeah. saying Paul is wrong about that, um, and you know certainly in the Catholic tradition, you know, with our emphasis on the sacraments, the idea that you know you know Christ is objectively present mm. in mm-hmm. you know what we receive in in communion, yeah. and that Christ is found there in a way that Christ just simply cannot be found in other places, yeah. and uh, with a kind of a f- I think of it not so much that Christ isn't found in other places, you know. As Jared Manley Hopkins wrote, "Christ plays in ten thousand places," yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but that there is a kind of a focused intensity of Christ yeah. in. In the Catholic context, in in, in, the, in the the sacraments, but but even more broadly in terms of the Christian tradition, in the gathered Christian community, right. in all of its heterogeneity, in all of its failures, right? I mean, it's the it's the crucified body of Christ, it's the broken body sure. of Christ that yeah. that we gather as, um, but also the living body of Christ, and so that I I feel like I would want to say to somebody who says, well, but well, why the church? It's like, well because that's where Christ is promised to be. He hasn't said he's not going to be other places. I mean, you might discover Christ on a, you know, Oregon sea coast. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> sure. gorgeous. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, but Christ is promised to be present, you know, where two or three are gathered in his name. Mm. And whatever that's going to look like, and it looks like different things in different traditions, um, I think we need to take that promise seriously. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's in the it's in the pain of those relationships Mm. often. Mm. Um, I mean, I, uh, uh, last year, um, little over a year ago, uh, preached a homily, uh, on the Sunday after the January 6th attack on the Capitol Mm -hmm. in which I was pretty blunt about, Mm. you know, what i you know, thought the role of the president had been in that and Mm. why I thought this was a problem. And I, by connected it to the scriptures of the day, and mm. which is the feast of the baptism of Christ and the idea that Christ goes into the waters of baptism. Why does Christ get baptized? Well, not because he needs his sins forgiven, but because these waters represent the kind of the chaos that humans have made of the world, and Christ goes to bring light into that darkness. Mm. And so I tried to put it in a, a theological context, and I knew, I mean, I even said in the homily, you know, if the polls are right, 50% of Catholics voted for President Trump. So mm. I know I'm going to make at least half of you mad. Right. Yeah. But but please, hear me out. Um, and then after that, I I got into a very heated discussion with two mm. people, one of whom had actually been at the Capitol, hadn't gone into the Capitol, but had been at the rally. Mm. Um, who felt that I was, you know, completely wrong, and that mm. I, sh- as a Catholic, I should support the president because of his position on abortion, mm. and that this was very clear to them, and. You know, and it was not, I'd like to claim that it was a productive conversation in which we ended in a, you know, an embrace of Christian fellowship. But that's not, that's not what happened. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I mean, where else would I have had that conversation, even if it didn't end up feeling particularly productive? You never know. Right. You never know. Um, But it, you know, it was, um, so, so. Life in the church can be often be painful, right? I mean, it mm. is crucified love. Yeah. Um, but I think that there is uh, the church at its best can create a space for encounter that you just really can't find anywhere else encounter with God, but also encounter with other people.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like the natural extension of the argument of. God who is love, this love is crucified love, invited you into it, but you can't love that God back if you don't love the person right in front of you, right? So this is the natural social context where that surely universally applies in terms of love your neighbor as yourself, but it seems to particularly apply in this locus of people who say they all have a relationship with that God who is love, right? Right, So. The arrangement is such that there's a mutual accountability to a vision of civility, if not charity, and and obviously it's imperfect. I've always latched on to that Augustine's idea of the church being part of the whole Christ, you know, where Christ is surely the head of this body who's up in the heavenlies in eternity And his resurrected body is there, but if the body of, if the church is somehow the body of Christ, not that piece of resurrected flesh, you know, that's up there now, but him still down in time in a sense and still working out the way in which he's assuming human nature through us and redeeming it from the inside, then, well, he is. I wouldn't. Not to be heretical. He's not still suffering or something like that. But it is like if we're his body, we're we're struggling down here, and he's with us. He's in this with us. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, Julian of Norwich talks about you know the words of Christ on the cross. I thirst, mm. and and one of her sa- things she says is, Christ has a spiritual thirst, and it's a, a what she calls a, a love longing to be united with us, mm. and that he is thirsting still not in his resurrected flesh but in his flesh that's still on earth in in the church yeah. and yep. um so you know she, she's she's Julian's very theologically careful so she says well you know as to his natural flesh he is he is impassible he's capable yeah. of suffering yeah. but he continues to suffer yeah. you know on earth and you know i mean one of the things that we suffer in the church is we suffer each other yeah <laughs> right and um i mean i think about even i think back to that you know rather um uh heated conversation that I got into with those two gentlemen. And, you know, even if the outcome was not maybe what I had wanted, I mean, it was a different kind of conversation because of the kinds of things that I felt like we at least should have been accountable for in that conversation, you know, to acknowledge in each other that, you know, a sincere love of God and um, a desire you know, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, sure. as we pray yeah. every time we gather together. And um, it certainly made me at least try and approach the conversation differently. Yeah. And, you know, I think, but, but yeah, part of the the ongoing suffering of Christ's body is that, you know, we we suffer each other and we suffer our divisions. Yeah. And I think
0: um, increasingly I'm, committed to the idea of the visible physical church because for all the reasons that you mentioned, we gather to hear the word and be shaped by the gospel. We gather for the sacraments. We gather for hopefully if indwelling of the Holy spirit that unites us, all those things that are in the scriptures, theologically in the tradition. But at the end of the day, our capacities for individualistic self delusion are just like limitless bottomless and it's not until you bump up with the external reality of an not just the world like oh i ran into a wall i thought that was a door but it was a wall Mm -hmm. but i ran into another human being another subjective person in reality and i'm telling i'm in this encounter I'm getting a sense of how they perceive me that right. maybe I'm not able to perceive it. it's that inner subjective you know you could go
1: yeah marriage is great for marriage <laughs> exactly
0: right it's the it's the analog and ideally in a Christian marriage you've got that within marriage and the family and the household but the church itself yeah you've opened the circumference um usually as you said to a social entity which expands beyond your shared affinity friend group of like oh I love to talk medieval theology you know me and Fritz you know we have this in common but here you're bumping up against the kind of real embodied incarnate in time feedback of other people and their perception of you. And I think that that's like, yeah, we should crave that because I think the kind of solipsistic individualistic media screen driven, you know, sort of society can leave us pretty deluded about ourselves. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I, and, and also, I mean, you're getting their perspective on you, and but you're getting their perspective on God as well. Sure. Which, exactly. You know, that's um, right. The, the, I guess, 15th century philosopher, Nicholas of Cusa, he Mm. has a a wonderful short work called De Visioni Dei, The the Vision of God, Mm. which is a wonderful title because it's both about our vision of God, but also God's vision of us. And he sets up this thought experiment where there's an icon of Christ, and it's painted in such a way that it's one of those paintings where the eyes follow you, wherever you are in the room, wherever you're in the room you feel like. the eyes are following you, but you would never know the exact nature of that icon unless there were other people in the room who were also moving around Mm. and having that same experience. That, you know, it's not that the eyes are following me in such a way that when I'm over here, the eyes can't also be looking over there because the person over there is also having that experience. But then he says, the only way you know that the icon has this quality is by talking to the other people in the room. Right, And so there's this sort of image of the church as this community of people who are constantly in motion mm. and experiencing the gaze of God, the vision of God upon them, mm. but also talking to each other yeah. and coming through that to realize, well, that person's also being seen by God yeah. at every moment. Mm. And that this this image of this, this icon must have this very, very spooky, special mm. property to it, but it's only both in staying in motion and in conversation Mm. that this, that this emerges. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It gets into a deep sense of how,
0: yeah, all the different members are part of one body. I mean, Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. Okay. We're going to bring this in for a landing. Two final questions. One of the things I love about this book is that it's written at least, if not to the modern, you know, sort of skeptical unbeliever, at least with them in mind, you know, as you said, so whether never believing atheist or lapsed person or something like that, but you're aware of the conditions of belief in the modern world. And that maybe it's harder for us to believe things like God is love or that some guy in Israel, you know, 2000 years ago was like the definitive manifestation of this self-sacrificing love. Like how, what, what is faith for It's like, how, how are we to understand faith in a way that is is non trivializing and actually opens up the depth of it in this like
1: kind of modern unbelieving landscape we're in that's i mean it's a great question i mean i can i can think of i mean i do think one aspect and this is uh um kind of thomas aquinas's gloss on on hebrews mm. um uh you know faith faith is the assurance of things not seen you know mm. but he, he says that, well you know one of the criteria for something being a matter of faith is this question of not seeing.
0: Mm.
1: Um, and of course, we talk about, you know, seeing with the eyes of faith and and faith as a, as a kind of a vision. But I, one of the things I like about Aquinas' account of faith is that it it kind of underscores the, the non-seeing aspect of it. Um, and I think that that, for the modern world, is... Um, that's that's an important, I guess I would say, apologetically, because so many Christians in the modern world, partly because I think they feel embattled, feel like they have to project this image of complete and a- absolute confidence. Mm-hmm. Like, well, we know the answer because we have faith. Um, but Aquinas gives us a sense that faith is is really more about what you don't see mm. and yet affirm. Um and I think that that there's a kind of humility mm-hmm. uh, to to that account of faith that foregrounds the not seeing aspect.
0: yeah. and how how does that respond though? I mean, I guess the modern, is skeptical atheists. There's like the four atheist horsemen. You know, that, that I guess they're <laughs> some of them are gone now. But you mentioned one, Hitchens and Dawkins, Dennett, maybe Sam Harris. I mean, they they would go as far as say is that that um, that's potentially dangerous to nurture people with that sense of wanting to affirm things they don't see. You're on your way towards superstition or gullibility or or. Western. It's it's been around in in philosophy for a long time in epistemology, but it's almost like immoral. To believe things you have insufficient evidence or something like that. So how, how is it
1: not that? Well, I mean, in some ways it is that, but we accept all sorts of things that we don't have sufficient evidence for. And it's it's always struck me. I mean, I can forgive you know, uh, you know, Sam Harris and and Christopher Hitchens, but I mean, Richard Dawkins is a practicing scientist <laughs> or, or was a practicing scientist, and and at least the practicing scientists I I know they want to say, well, we don't really know. I mean, science is about creating a hypothesis and Mm, you test mm -hmm. it and you're kind of making your best guess and we've got these models of what reality is like. So I guess I would want to push back and say, well, I mean, what almost all of life is about things we don't know. Mm. Um, But we still have to, we still want to affirm. Um, And we think we have grounds for affirming it. I mean, it's not like we're just believing whatever willy-nilly. I mean, Mm. we do you know, have, we can give an account of the hope that is in us, right? Mm. Uh, even if we can't conclusively prove it, mm. right? So mm. I guess I would want to push back and say, well, look, you know, most of the science we know is not things we see. I mean, nobody's ever, you know, nobody's ever seen a lepton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Yet we have grounds for thinking that, sure. you know, there is something that what we call a lepton kind of corresponds to. And and so, um yeah, I think most of life is about affirming things we don't actually see, yeah. but but have reasons for thinking are true. And I think one of the things I try and do in this book is kind of assemble a set of reasons mm-hmm. for why you might think that the Christian story is the true story of the world. Mm-hmm. Um is it a knockdown demonstration of this? Is it does it remove the need for faith? Well, no, not at all. Yeah. Um, but it's. A, I mean, I. there's The publisher came up with the subtitle of the book, but you know, an invitation to Christian faith. I mean, I think it's a good subtitle. Publishers know what they're doing. Often. Yeah. Um, it, it's an. In, so in a sense, it's assembling, as it were, the evidence. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's an invitation to faith, not yep. a knockdown argument.
0: Yeah. No. That's. I love that. It. it it struck me recently that our lives are pressed up against the edge of such great mysteries. I mean, where were you before you were born anywhere? You know, what's happening after you die? Where yeah. did the world come from? What's wrong with the world? These kind of meta worldview questions that in some ways faith is necessary to make a wager on any of these looming questions. And in fact, to live a purposeful, meaningful, directed life you're implicitly maybe making a wager about what those things are really what the answer to where you came from is or where we're going or what's wrong with the world and how can it be fixed even if we don't want to like rationally do the work and be like well i believe we're fundamentally meat machines with no purpose at all you know (laughs) or we're created by this loving triune god i mean these are totally different answers that should shape a totally different way of life if you actually thought through the connections and so in some ways Seeing faith as um, a necessity for navigating the great unknowns and mysteries that kind of haunt us in this life. I, I like the way you shaped that up. So if someone was convinced enough by the, the evidence, not the knockdown, drag out, but the evidence of invitation to this picture of a God who's like this and uh, has made this kind of self-sacrifice, self-sacrificing love plain and invited you into it, how would you how would you invite someone who's not a
1: Christian in? Like, how would someone try on this Christian faith? I mean, I I would like to say, you know, just seek out your local Christian community, but that could be a a recipe for disaster. (laughs) Um, uh, Partly because, you know, the church, itself is so fragmented, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and you just don't don't know what you're going to find. I mean, you know, most of us do Christianity pretty badly. (laughs) And, um you know, and I think it's great that we can call ourselves Christians, even though we we do it so badly, but it that doesn't necessarily help our witness um but I do think that in a in a sense um one you have to find a way to get to know Jesus Christ better mm-hmm. and you know to fall in love with him i mean that's that sounds kind of horrifically you know <laughs> sentimental but um but I think that that is you know and then the question is, well, how do you find Jesus Christ? Well, I think you find Jesus in in the scriptures, but mm. i also I do think you find it in the Christian community mm. um now I mean one of the things I worry about is we live in a culture that you know prizes you know kind of consumer choice above all else, so i don't i, I worry about telling people well go and and look around till you find a Christian community that seems right to you mm-hmm. um but I do think we have to make allowances for individual psychology and personal history and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, and even within say the Catholic church, I mean, there's very different kinds of Catholic churches. You can go to a, you know, a Latin mass with Gregorian chant, or you can go to a mass with gospel music. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that's all part of the variety of, of the church. It's the, you know, the diversity that the spirit delights in and, Mm. So, and and I think it's okay if given different people's dispositions, different things appeal to them. But I would say, you know, you have to get to know Jesus Christ. And some of that is is through reading the scriptures and particularly the gospels, but really all the scriptures. Um, but also I think it's indispensable to somehow find your way into a Christian community. Mm-hmm. Um, and one that doesn't just make you feel good, but one that offers you some sort of some sort of challenges.
0: Right, the path of discipleship,
1: followership, right. yeah. Right, and I suppose the other thing is, you know, um, in addition to finding a Christian community, find particular individual Christians, people who you think are doing it well. And I think what one of the things you'll discover is they've got struggles like everybody else, you know, <laughs> um, but I, I think there is a sense of, you know, Christianity is not a, a body of, even though, even though Christianity has doctrines, it's not a body of doctrines to be learned. It's not a um, set of moral rules to be followed, though of mm-hmm. course the church does have moral rules. But it's, a, you know, it's a, an encounter with a, the person of Jesus Christ. And the way you encounter Jesus Christ is by associating with other people who have encountered him. Mm. Um, and so there is a sense in which, you know, you become a Christian through a kind of an apprenticeship with people who have been doing it for a while. And you know, so in addition to being like just part of a church community, you know, hmm. going to a church on Sunday, I think you you do need to have some sort of connection with other Christians who hmm. who you think who in your judgment from what you can see, have figured out a little bit of something about how to do this.
0: Hmm. No, it's fantastic. I think if anything has piqued or intrigued anyone's interest. In the book, you have helpful readings and a lot of them are scripture. Go to read 1 John or read right. the Gospel of Mark. And and really that that's that next step is to go actually encounter in reality some people who are um, presuming to be followers of Christ and to be part of a movement that's going on for 2000 years. That's kind of a crazy thought <laughs> that this guy in Nazareth <laughs> we're still following.
1: Yeah, and you think over the course of 2,000 years, we've maybe accrued a little bit of wisdom. Yeah, you would hope there's some,
0: <laughs> and yet some of it has to be, like, begun again with every generation. But if you've been interested at all in this podcast about the God who is love, I heartily, heartily commend the book by by Dr. Bowerschmidt, The Love That Is God, An Invitation to Christian Faith, with Yerdmans uh, kind of coming out during this pandemic, having a word, um, of salve, of consolation, really, of a God who is, um, whose love encompasses love and truth, justice and mercy. I, I think that word is, is timeless and really grateful for your time today uh, being with us, Dr. Barschmidt. Thank well,
1: you. Well, thank you for inviting me here.
0: This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream things on your phone or computer. Check us out on the web at georgefox.edu slash talks where we have videos, publications, and more. And we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks